all right well um as of today we are uh just over a week and a half out from the 2023 crazy mountain 100 and this is my i guess it's like an official race recap um I needed some time to kind of process this thing because these races are, are such a, a massive undertaking um, from every angle of life that we experience emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, intellectually, all of these different things. And so like it, it takes a lot of time to download, to process and to like understand and extract what's important and then also just what what can be discarded. And so I hope that um, my rambling over the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes, however long this is, will help to kind of shed some light on what the crazy mountain 100 miler uh, was to me, my experience of it. And then, and then maybe like there's some type of takeaway or lesson or something that sticks out to you. That's, that's my, my big intention with this is that, uh, that there's something in it for you as well. So the perspective that I'm going to share from is twofold. Number one, it's, it's going to be from sharing my experience leading up to it, what went into it, and then ultimately the event itself. Um, and I think this perspective will help somebody who isn't much of a runner to understand what goes into it. But then I also wanted to give it from the perspective of somebody who does run these types of races. And so it will, it will also be partly sharing about the course itself and some of the things that I would be considering if I was to run this race in the future. So let's just kind of start at the beginning. Um, the, the Crazy Mountain 100 is a hundred mile point to point race in the crazy mountains here in central Montana. And the crazy mountains, um, are kind of like a, uh, kind of like an anomaly in a way, because the location in which they're in is really interesting. They're basically in the middle of a flat valley. So if you can imagine just, you know, the, basically the plains of Montana and cornfields and hay fields as far as the eye can see. And then as you keep panning to your left, all of a sudden there's this massive, craggy, rocky mountain range that basically shoots up out of the ground over 5,000 feet to one of the highest points in the crazy mountain range, which is just over 11,100 feet, which is crazy peak at 11,116 feet. So, so you could imagine like, it, this is just kind of like a, a really interesting place to find a mountain range. You wouldn't necessarily find one out in the flatlands, right? So it's just very unique as it is. The historical significance of the crazy mountains though, is actually one of my favorite elements of this whole experience. And that's that you know, the range itself is located in the country of the Crow people, you know, the, 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 the tribe, the Crow, the Crow people. And the Crow people have been living in those mountains and using those mountains 
as a as a guide uh, for their people and, and a place for their young men to go on their quests into the mountains to be able to receive instructions from elders and and spirits as to how they should live out their life you know these are these are more commonly known as vision quests and for the last 12 to 20,000 years the crow people have called this land their home and originally when that land was taken from them around the end of the 1800s after the battle of little bighorn and they were placed into a reservation that reservation originally included the crazy mountain range which to the Crow people was actually, you know, uh, I guess the maybe a, a bit of a silver lining, if, if there was one, um, for lack of a better way to put it. But as time goes on, and uh, the U.S. government realizes that the Crazy Mountain Range is actually an important resource and, and geographical location, um, the Crow Reservation continues to dwindle down in size and eventually the crazy mountain range is no longer part of the crows reservation and then that land kind of turns into two things number one is privately owned land and then also national forest service land as well Um, none of which now belongs to the crow but the crow still have access to it if they can find a, a public entry point yeah upsets me too um but let's talk about the historical significance before the United States government got involved. This is, this is actually really cool. Now, again, like I mentioned before, the, the Crazy Mountains have been used for centuries as a place for their young men uh, and warriors of the tribe to, to go into the range, into what's called a vision quest. And a vision quest for uh, simplification is simply where a young man, typically around the age of... 13 to 17, somewhere in there, um, goes into the mountains without food, without water, without necessarily a direction, and goes into those mountains and, and fasts the entire time until he receives a transmission from the spirits or from the ancestors of the elders as to how that warrior should go back down to the people, into, into his tribe, and, and live his life, and, and how, he should, how he should show up for his people, and what that would look like. Now, sometimes these were a couple days in length, sometimes they were a full length, uh, excuse me, a full week in length. But probably one of the most significant vision quests that was, that was had by the Crow people um, was by a young warrior in the tribe named Plentyku. Now, Plentyku, uh, the, the, the word itself is spelled C-O-U-P-S, Plentyku. And although it's spelled with a U and a P and an S, it's, it's pronounced just like C-O-O, so Plentyku. And the word Ku actually is, um, it, it's a word of honor in a way. And, and basically, you know, I, I guess we don't need to really talk about it, but you can look it up if you'd like. The word "ku" actually does have some some significance to it, and, and I think that uh, it would be worth looking into. But Plenty Ku was actually nine years old, much younger than most young warriors when they go into the mountains for their vision quest. He was nine years old. Can you imagine <laughs> sending a nine-year-old, sending your nine-year-old into the, the wild, remote mountains without food, without water, 
And then basically just saying, all right, son, see you in a few days. <laughs> and just forgetting about him. That's what they did. And young Puniku goes into the Crazy Mountain Range. And he climbs up to Crazy Mountain Peak, which again is just over 11,100 feet. And he sits there for four days until he finally receives a download from the spirits as to what he should uh, do within his life. And two things came to him in that vision. Number one is that he would be a great leader and warrior for the Crow tribe. The other part, which I thought was a bit haunting, was in his vision, he was told that at some point, all of the bison and the buffalo would be completely wiped out across the plains and that they would be replaced with cattle in his lifetime. And the interesting thing about that, and, and as I say it, I, you know, I have goosebumps on my leg thinking about this, but that's exactly what, what came to be after the Battle of Little Bighorn and the Crow people were put into the reservation. The bison were wiped out, as we know, as the, the railroad made its way from east to west and people were, you know, exterminating the buffalo and the bison by the, the thousands just for fun. Not even sport, but just for fun. And so this was actually a really significant time because at, at this point, there wasn't really somebody in the Crow tribe that was leading the people in the way that Plenty Coup eventually did. And he actually became a very significant leader and warrior in the tribe. And so significant that when it finally came time for Plenty Coup to, uh, for lack of a better word, retire or step down as chief, they actually retired the word chief. And so anybody that led the Crow tribe after that point, which was around 19, 1911, I think, um, was no longer allowed to be called chief. And so effectively, he was the last chief of the Crow people. In modern translation, that would be uh, an athlete who basically was a standout amongst the team and in the league. And at the end of that player's career, they retire his jersey. And so nobody can ever wear that number again. That's effectively what they did with Plenty Coup and the word chief of the, of the tribe. And so there's a lot of, a lot of history around that. I think I maybe rabbit hold a little bit more than, <laughs> than I wanted it to, than I wanted to, but you know, there's, there's a lot there. Um, and that really only scratches the surface that, that doesn't include anything that, uh, that, that happened with Plenty Coup's grandfather, which is also very significant with the Crow tribe. So anyhow, let's, let's move forward. Um, I first heard of this race, July 28th, 2022. I was sitting in the hot tub. It was about 7 a.m. And I got a, a text from a friend of mine who was like, hey man, are you, uh, are you running this, uh, this crazy mountain 100? And I said to myself, what are you talking about? Like, what is this? He's like, well, this is, this is that hundred miler up in Montana. And I'm, and I'm kind of like, no, there, there are no hundred milers in Montana that we don't have a hundred mile race in Montana. And so I start looking it up and apparently there's this hundred mile race in Montana that starts today. And I was just so beside myself. Cause it's like, how can, how can me, the ultra runner, the one who runs hundred mile races, not know 
about a hundred mile race in my gosh dang backyard. Here it is. And so that was my first introduction to it. And so for the next 24 hours or so, I followed him and every, every post of his that went up, man, I was just following along and figuring out where he was and how it was going and what the course was like. And I just couldn't get this idea out of my head that I'm going to do this race next year. I can't believe I missed it this year, but I'm not missing it next year. And so, I mean, really, if we zoom out a little bit, this, this experience is 12 months in the making. And so, you know, this was in July. And so a few months go by and, you know, I'm, I'm still training, I'm still running, I'm still doing, you know, all of my, all of my normal things in terms of running and all of that. But officially I started training for this race, December 25th. And that was the day after Christmas. And, you know, most people wouldn't start training for something significant right after on Christmas day. But I think that why it worked out for me to do it so well is because we had company here and I had just got back from Las Vegas and I was down there for a coaching event and I had some downtime while I was at that coaching event and on my computer sitting in the penthouse suite of the Palms Hotel overlooking beautiful Las Vegas, I put together my, my lists. I put together my training lists. I put together my gear lists. I started planning everything. I started allocating the time that was going to be required for me to do this. I started looking at my calendar and seeing what I could remove from it so that I would have more time to train. And so I really started to discern what it was going to take to, to do this. And so doing all of that in Las Vegas and then coming back to Montana a couple days prior to Christmas, like really really got me going in a good way. And so when I woke up Christmas morning and I had a little bit of time before we, you know, did things with family, I just decided right there, like, I'm not waiting another day. We're starting right now. And so I started my training December 25th. And so from December 25th until the actual race, which was July 28th of this year, um, I, I split my training into three main blocks that were each about two and a half months. All right. And I, I broke those into three different training blocks. So block number one was my base building block. Okay. So the base building is that time, um, where you're, you're really trying to, you're really trying to build a good foundation for your body to be able to run long distances with little to, to, to no effort. And so basically what that looks like from a movement standpoint is long, slow runs. And so once a week, um, I would do, uh, what I would call a long run that ranged anywhere from two to five hours. And obviously as we, we go through the two and a half months, like that, that time on feet builds. Um, so, you know, like for the first month or so I was doing like a two to three hours, uh, the next month I was doing like in that four to five hour range. And so it progressively builds with time. And during the week I would just do say 60 to 75 minutes every day. And so from a training standpoint, I was running anywhere from five to seven days per week, just depending on where in the block that I was. So that first two and a half months was just getting a good foundation, a good base built underneath me to move long distances at a relatively slow pace with minimal effort without really feeling any kind of struggle or hurt or whatever. That second two and a half month block. Um, and I think that probably started like around 
mid-February, March, somewhere in there. Um, but this was all dedicated to speed work. So now that I had like a solid base underneath me, I could now I could now increase the volume. I could increase the speed and the uh, the the dynamicness of my training plan. And so I started implementing a lot of speed work. And so twice a week, I would uh, I would do different types of speed work from tempo training, um, which is really popular. Uh, in, in Africa, it's actually where it originated from, was from the Kenyan runners of Africa. And I was also doing some hit rounds. I was also doing some, um, some, uh, uh, some high intensity work as well. So a lot of different types of speed work were involved in that second training block. And I think that what that allowed me to do, or what any type of speed training allows you to do, is it allows you to build an extra gear. And I think that this is one of the things that a lot of ultra runners miss. They think that just having a solid foundation is enough and just being able to move at a slow pace, relatively easy all day, all night long is enough. But actually, I think it's important that you actually develop an extra gear. You actually train for speed because I think there's a couple things that happens. Number one is that it, it builds the, the body and it builds the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments in a really unique way. It allows them to be more flexible, more dynamic, and it allows them to develop more of those fast twitch muscle fibers that we talk about with athletes that play football and basketball, which are very much different than uh, the majority of ultra distance runners who typically have bodies comprised mostly of slow twitch muscle fibers, where they don't have that, that dynamic ability to, to jump or to spring off of one foot, or to be able to sprint down a hill because they're trying to make up time to catch a, a cutoff at an aid station. If you don't build that extra gear, if you don't have some type of speed work built into your training plan, I think you're really missing out in a big way. So that was the second month, um, or excuse me, the second training block. The third training block that basically went from, I would say, mid-March or so until the actual race was me just vert chasing. And so basically what I mean by this is I, I stopped doing a lot of those five-hour runs. I basically cut out the majority of my speed work. I would maybe do like one speed session every couple of weeks. But what I was really trying to do was to find the steepest possible terrain that I could find. And the cool thing was, is that here in Montana, you know, the mountains were, they were uh, still pretty full of snow, but as we got around the March, April, May area, they were starting to, to thin out a little bit. And so I was able to access things that I wasn't really able to early on in the plan because it was still winter here. So I was just out in the mountains chasing as much vertical as possible, trying to find the steepest terrain so that I could build the hiking muscles and, and really like craft that hiking stride and technique. And this is important because, you know, I know so many really fast runners that are poor hikers and vice versa. I know some fantastic hikers and poor runners. Now you got to remember that the stride, the technique, the movement, the energy expenditure, it's all different from hiking to running. And so I think that if you're going to run ultras in the mountains, you have to be versed in both of these disciplines. You have to do both. You can't just 
run all the time, but never practice any, any hiking and climbing. And so that's what I dedicated that third block of training to was just getting on the steepest possible terrain and just hiking, just hiking, but hiking at a pace that was, that was still moving. You know what I mean? It wasn't a casual fun Sunday hike with the kids. I'm still out there getting it. I'm still putting in work, but I'm not running. And I think that by doing that, man, it really bolstered my leg strength, my core, and again, my tendons and my ligaments as well. Now that's just the running stuff. That's a lot, right? I, I know it's, it's, it's quite a bit, but also this is another piece where a lot of ultra runners go wrong is they don't do any strength work. They think that just the running portion is enough. Well, it's not, it's not because there, there's still a lot of physiological adaptations that you'll miss out on without strength training. Because in strength, or excuse me, in running, you're really only in one plane of motion, right? Like you're really only training to go one way forward. That's it. And so your body is just in this constant, just sagittal plane of motion where you're just moving forward. The strength work allows you to train in three dimensions versus just that, you know, two-dimensional movement of running. And so with that... I get to focus on a lot of different things. I get to focus on my fundamentals, meaning my, my deadlifts and my squats, my push-ups, my pull-ups. I get to focus on my core, specifically my core stability. I get to focus on agility and stability, and then I also get to focus on my mobility in my hips and in my shoulders. And I get to focus on single leg strength and single leg stability. And so these are all things that you, that you train in three dimensions to make you just a more well-rounded athlete. Because I think that it's great to be able to run and, it's, and, and to, to do these 100-mile efforts, but like, imagine how good you could be if you also were versed well in the gym. Imagine if you just had a really stable core. How would that affect your running? Imagine if you had impeccable single-leg stability. How would that improve your running over rocky technical terrain? Because if you think about it, I mean, are you ever running on two feet? When in the mountains or are on the track, are you ever running and land on two feet at the same time? Never. It doesn't happen. And so it only makes sense to make sure that you're training for things like single leg stability, mobility, core. All of these things will make you a better runner. They're going to make you stronger and they're going to make your body move with less energy expenditure. And if you're doing these big efforts, like hundred miles, every, every ounce of energy matters. And so I was in the gym that entire time as well. So the training went well overall. I mean, if I think about like everything that I did from December 25th up until the actual race in at the end of July, it, it went fantastically. I, I went, number one, um, I was coached by Zach Bitter, who, if you don't know, he's a multiple hundred mile world record holder, either currently or in recent times before uh, somebody else somebody else was able to, to one-up him. Um, but this guy has run the fastest hundred. He's ran the fastest hundred on a track. He's just done some incredible things in the endurance world. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple times, just a really intelligent guy who looks at problems much differently than I do. He looks at the, the, the game of running much differently than I do. 
I'm very visceral and very like feeling oriented, meaning like I don't always necessarily know how to gauge a good training session other than how it feels. Whereas Zach will look at it from a data perspective. So I'll send him my numbers, heart rate, total time, activity time, average pace, all of these different metrics. And he'll look at those and he'll give me an idea of how it went. And so I think that having somebody like that in my corner was, was incredibly helpful because in those moments of like unsureness or maybe even doubt, he was able to kind of just like reaffirm that, no, we're on the right path and and here's why X, Y, Z. And so that was super helpful and a great coach. I've been with him now for, I think four years, four years, five years. And I'm going to continue to work with Zach until I'm dead, man. So training went well with Zach. Um, I went injury free the whole time from December to, to, to the race. And this isn't uncommon for me. I'm, I'm really blessed in the fact that I keep up on my strength work and my mobility work so much to the point that I, I don't really ever get injuries. You know, for example, like I, I rolled my ankle for the first time in my entire life, maybe like two or three years ago, sprinting downhill on some technical terrain. And so, you know, that's really the extent of my running injury. So that was great. I was injury free, but I also used a handful of races in ascending distances as training runs to accustom my body to the time and to the distance on my feet, but also to kind of get my head back into race mode and to test some of the new gear that I was working on um, for, for this season. And so those races that I did leading up, I did a 50K Spartan race here in Montana, which is actually one of my favorites to do because it's early season. It's a ton of elevation over 30 something miles. And it's just super muddy and, and Western. So I really love that one. So I did that one in March, or excuse me, in April. And then in June, uh, I went out to, uh, to, to Wyoming and I ran the Bighorn, uh, the Bighorn 52 miler. And that one was cool too, because that was in the Bighorn mountains of Wyoming. A lot of cool history of the Shoshone people down there, the Shoshone tribe. And that's all at one time was native land as well too. So that had that really really spiritual connection to that place too. So that was great. So we went from a 50 K, which was 30 something miles. And then we went to a 52 miler. So again, we're ascending the distance. And then we went right into the hundred miler in July. And, and looking back on it now, this is the first time when I've used big races or races of ascending distances as training runs leading up to the big one versus what I've typically always done, which is I just train for a straight amount of time and then I, I just run the race. I just run the hundred miler. If I could give any type of advice as to like what a person aspiring to do a hundred mile race or run should do in training, I would encourage you to build in these ascending distances of, of races into your training plan. I think that like it's a really good opportunity to get like a, a, a race day feel for how everything goes from how your body performs to the gear that you're using. Um, because, you know, in training, you're really not running for more than five hours where you really do get those opportunities if you build races into your training plan. So I hope that made sense. And so, you know, the, the other thing that I did in training as a, as a whole here was that I was testing a different theory of volume. And this was something that was new for me because over the last 
four or so years that I've been working with Zach, we've always done a lot of volume. And what we were testing this time was less miles per week than what we've done in the past, far less actually. So to give you an idea, depending on where I was in the training cycle, I was running on average uh, an, like 50 to 80 miles a week for some of my previous hundreds. Um, this time I was running on average, maybe like 35, 40 to 50 miles a week. So you can kind of see like it was, it was much less than what I was used to. And early on, you know, there was this concern of mine that was like, well, am, am I running enough? Like, is this going to be enough? Am I going to have that volume in my legs to wear a hundred miles in the steepest, rockiest terrain I've ever ran in? Is that going to be enough for me? And so what I was reminded of from Zach was that, you know, the majority of these hundred mile races in the mountains are, are a lot of it is, is hiking because, you know, you're climbing up these big mountain passes, you're climbing up to these big peaks and then you're descending a ton. And so there's a lot of hiking involved, not, not necessarily all running. And that was something that I guess I, I, I knew, but I, I didn't really remember in that moment. And so Again, it was a really good lesson for me to trust the coaching that, that I had in place and trust my coach and, and realize that like he wants me to succeed probably just as much as I do. And so, it, you know, I should listen here. And so that's what I did. And, you know, it ended up working out the way that it did. So, yeah, I had a really good training plan leading up to it. But, you know, there's a lot that goes into a 100-mile race just besides the sheer amount of training, you know, for example, like gear and strategy and, and logistics, like these are all major factors for these hundred mile efforts. And so let's go through these one at a time. We'll go through gear. We'll go through strategy. We'll go through logistics. Okay. So let's talk gear for a second. Now, as a whole, I think that if you're an aspiring hundred mile runner, that no matter what, like the gear that you use is either going to, to make or break you in these moments because that outside of your own mind and thoughts are the only things that you have to rely on is your gear. And so what I like to look at this as is a, a science project in total. I'm like the mad scientist out there and I always want to be testing new things to see what works best, what isn't working, and then like what I need to do in order to make my gear set up for me the, the best way that I know. <sighs> I had to get a water break. And so this year, I was trying a few different things. Number one, I was trying a new energy gels. I was trying spring energy gels instead of the goos that I've used in the past. I like the goo, but I think that my evolution as a runner and uh, my, my know-how of the game had kind of like led me to this point where goo wasn't uh, serving me anymore. And there was a better product out there that I tested and actually really enjoyed. And those were those spring energy gels. The main difference between the two is that goo is more of like a, a, a laboratory or factory created gel substance with, with calories and carbohydrates. Whereas the spring energy gels, it's whole food, nothing created in a lab. It's free, it's, it's fruit puree. And so if we look at it from like a, a gastrointestinal, a GI standpoint, you're going to have less issues. And you also have different flavor options to choose from things that like I, I hadn't had before. And so 
the palate fatigue that tends to happen uh, with products like goo typically happens for me like around mile 30. I'm just, I'm sick of the goos. But what I had found was that with those spring energies, I wasn't really getting, getting palate fatigue around mile 40 or to 45, which is actually significantly longer that I could withstand those gels before I could just get tired of them. And so I really liked the spring energy, so I stayed with them. But I was, I was also trying a different pack. And if you followed me for any length of time, you know that you know, I'm very partial, very passionate and very uh, in love with the, the product that I helped co-create with Flag Nor Fail, the brand, which is our Apex bag. You know, I put 100 miles of training into that bag's creation, probably half of which were done in negative 10 to 20 degree weather here in Montana during the winter. And so we put a lot of love and a lot of time and a lot of R&D into that bag. And as much as I love that bag, what I've come to find is that that is a fantastic bag for a 50 mile race. For zero to 50 miles, that is the bag. But when it comes to 100 miles and that thing's going to be on you a little bit longer, then, you know, I wanted something a little bit different. I needed something that was a little bit lighter, that breathed a little bit better, that was just a little bit more forgiving, um, if it was going to be getting wet. And so that was something that, uh, that I switched to was a different vest. I was also trying out toe socks for the first time. Um, I, I guess never really thought of toe socks as a way to reduce blisters and chafing and my feet. So I switched to a toe sock and through my science project, I started with a brand called creepers that were sent to me, um, uh, through, uh, through, a through, ins it was an Instagram account and they sent me some product. Unfortunately, they ended up tearing on me after like the second use. And then when I tried to like relay that information back to the account on Instagram, they never responded to me. So I just basically was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to find another brand. So my buddy, Jeremy Miller, who's also a runner and, and a guy on YouTube who I, I really love to follow. Um, he recommended a brand called Exoskin. And so I ordered like three pairs of these toe skins or toe socks from them. And uh, they ended up actually working really well for me. So I went to Exoskin Toe Socks. I was also trying Tailwind electrolytes for the first time, you know, and I was basically testing out um, if I take a, a, a liquid electrolyte, I wanted to try it at different intervals and different amounts to kind of see like what worked best. Did I need seven ounces every 15 minutes? Did I need 10 ounces every 30 minutes? Like what allowed me to feel the best out there. And then I was also trying a Tailwind Recovery Shake. Now, the thing about this is that this recovery shake was perfect for me after a long run or in the middle of a race when I would hit an aid station with my crew. And so it's like 50 grams of protein, but also 50 grams of sugar as well. And I thought that that would be a great like treat that I could have, something to look forward to as I was uh, running through a race or getting to the end of a long run here at the house, something that I could look forward to. Because when you're out and you're doing these big efforts, every little treat uh, or thing that you can look forward to when you're fully depleted is like the best thing ever. And so this Tailwind Recovery Shake became that like shining light for me <laughs> when, when things weren't going so well. Like as I was getting closer to the aid station, I couldn't wait to have this chocolate recovery shake from Tailwind because it just tasted so good and it just really hit the spot in those, in those moments for me. So that was the gear stuff. 
Um, from a strategy standpoint, if I look at the elevation profile of the actual race, it's, man, it's like an EKG, man. It's just up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. There's just so many steep climbs to this race. And so in order for me to be efficient on the steeper climbs, like I've got to have those hiking muscles trained. And it's kind of like what we talked about earlier is like, you know, we, we just running and hiking are just completely different stride and mechanics and we have to have them both. And so for the strategy on this race, I just need to make sure that I'm efficient on the uphill on those steep climbs in order for me to really not like, you know, skunk out early on in the race because I don't have the legs or the gas to be able to do it. But the other piece of, of the strategy for this race to be successful is my use of pacers and <clears throat> making sure that I have a couple pacers on hand that can be really helpful for me um, to, you know, for, for a couple reasons. Number one is to make sure that I'm going the right way, you know, because there's some parts of the race where, you know, I would just be in a low spot and having some, somebody to just follow really takes away a lot of the mental stress and uh, allows me to just kind of like follow somebody's feet. And so that's super helpful, but also to, to keep me honest, you know, because I'll be honest, like there, <laughs> there are some times where like you just kind of get into that like foggy headspace of like not wanting to be doing this anymore. And just like questioning why I put myself in these situations all the freaking time. And it's nice to have somebody to kind of hear me out for a second and then call me on my bullshit and redirect my thinking. So my use of pacers is also really important when doing these bigger 100 mile efforts. But also in this race, the majority of the aid stations were remote. And so what that means for me is that I'm not always going to have help out there and I'm going to have to be able to take care of myself. And so one of the things that I did is I, I used filter flasks. And if you're not sure what these are, you know, these are, these are soft flasks that have a filter on the cap. And so basically anytime I came across water, which was all the fricking time, um, I would just, I'd fill up my soft flask, screw my cap back on. And as I drink the water filters itself, and this was a massive, massive help to have that with me, but also inclement weather. I mean, this is another big thing when you're dealing with the mountains they create their own weather patterns. And so I just needed to make sure that I had clothing options um, to, to be able to answer to the inclement weather. So having rain jackets and gloves if I needed them and long pants if I needed them, having all of that stuff. And then also taking into consideration the wildlife that could possibly be in the area. In our area specifically, it's, it's grizzly bears, it's elk, deer, uh, moose, all of those different things. And I had to make sure that I have the, the knowledge to understand the wildlife I'm going to be around and then to be, have a general understanding of the behavioral characteristics if I was to encounter these wildlife and how to, how to make sure that uh, I don't die <laughs> with any types of encounters. And so we had bear spray on hand. Obviously, I study bear logic and other predator logic as well. But then also knowing like what the general cutoffs are at the different aid stations because the, the idea of having a cutoff is basically just for everybody's safety, you know, and at some aid stations, they have a cutoff and I have to be to that aid station by this time, 
So knowing what those aid stations are, knowing when those cutoffs are so that I can pace myself accordingly. So all of this stuff plays into the strategy of being able to complete these 100 mile races. So we've talked about gear, we've talked about logistics, let's talk about, or excuse me, we've talked about gear and strategy, but now let's talk about logistics. Let's look at this race from just a logistical point of view and, and just realize all the different elements in order to be successful. Well, number one, it's point to point. Remember, I talked to you about that in the beginning. So I'm definitely gonna need a crew of people to be able to jump from aid station to aid station to be able to meet me at different intervals in order for them to, to give me supplies and revamp me with whatever I need for that next section of the race. I'm also gonna need a house for the crew and, and myself to sleep in when we're not at the race. So I gotta, I gotta get a house. The crew's gotta know where to go at the different aid stations, so I gotta put the plan together. I gotta make sure that they have the directions. I gotta make sure they have the GPS coordinates in case the, the, uh, you know, the phone stops working and we have to go old school. We have to have communication devices between myself and my crew so that, you know, as I'm, as I'm on the course somewhere, obviously there's no service out there, that I'm able to communicate with them and let them know when I'm going to be there and if I'm going to need anything specific. I'm also going to have to have planning meetings with my crew. And this was something else that we did is we did this ahead of time through group chats, uh, but we also did this in person once we all got to the crew house is, we just had one big meeting as to everything, talking about strategy, logistics, what to expect, everything. So we have to have meetings with the crew to make sure everybody's on the same page. But then we also have to have order of operations at every different aid station. This is another important part that I think that not a lot of crews do together is an order of operations. So what I mean by this is, Every time I would check into an aid station with my crew, they knew exactly what they needed to do step by step. So for example, I outlined this all ahead of time. The first thing that I want when I come into the aid station, I want my tailwind recovery shake. That protein shake I was telling you about, remember the one that I'm always looking forward to? That's the first thing that I want. <coughs> the second thing that I want is I want my pack taken off. I then want my pack refilled with the bag that, that has that aid station's name on it because I've already pre-filled it with things that I'm going to need for the next section and so on and so forth. And so we just have a very methodical list of operations and things that we need to accomplish at each aid station. And I think that when you can outline all of that for your crew, if you can nail down all the logistics as best as you possibly can, you're going to really take a lot of thinking out of it and it's going to be easier for your crew. It's going to be easier for you. And ultimately you're going to be able to get in and out of those aid stations more efficiently. And when you can do that, you just save a ton of time. And so if you're a runner looking to, to do a big race, I would highly encourage that you put together some type of crew brief. And basically this is a, a document that just outlines everything, strategy and logistics and gear and anything that you think that your crew may need, answer those questions in the brief. And this was something that I did too. And it just makes a massive difference when you do these, these longer races. Oh man. Okay. So that's, that's all of the preparation leading up to it. But now let's talk about, let's talk about the race itself. All right. Let's talk about the, the race day, the, the morning of, all right? So our house was about an hour and a half from the starting line. And so, you know, we were up at 3.30 that morning. 
um, got everything ready to go, put on all my stuff that I was going to, made my breakfast, which by the way is um, two packs of oatmeal, some some uh, almond milk, some brown sugar, some chia seeds. That's typically what I have for breakfast before a big effort. And then so we, we got to the course and they did the official countdown and we got the race underway, right? So we started at 6 a.m., all right? And so that, that first section of the race was uh, 19 or so miles. It was like 19.3 miles before I was going to see my crew again. And so that first, that first stretch was basically just traversing a hillside and, and a few things, <laughs> few things happened to me in that first section that, uh, that made the race interesting. And I think to preempt what I'm about to say is that when you're, when you're running these hundred mile races, man, you basically prepare for the worst and hopefully you'll, you'll get somewhere, you know, uh, on, on the upside of the worst. And, and hopefully like you just end up having a, a pretty good race, knowing that everything is going to go wrong at some point because it does. And for me that happened at mile two, <laughs> like, oh man, right at the beginning of the race at mile two, uh, I remember I was just trudging along, doing my thing, feeling good. And then I started hearing like a, like a loud buzzing sound, but I didn't know where it was coming from. And so I just thought like, oh, well there's, you know, there's a beehive or something nearby, not knowing that ground bees are a thing. Did you know this? I had no idea that ground bees are actually a, a real thing and they have their hives underground. And so the, the beehive was literally in the middle of the freaking trail. I stepped directly on the hive and the bees just freaking lit my ankles up and it was super painful and uh, it was just so stressful because number one, uh, you know, my ankles swell because I'm allergic to bees. And number two is that like, well, shoot, we just started this thing and I got 98 miles. I got to go with swollen ankles and, you know, allergic reaction to the bees. So luckily I had a communication device like I talked about within my strategy. And so because of that, I, I radioed to my team and I'm like, Hey, when I see you guys in a few hours, I'm going to need Claritin and I'm going to need some hydrocortisone cream because I got to take care of this stuff because my ankles were already starting to swell up. So yeah, man, I stepped on beehive at mile two. It was rough. Now at mile four, I realized that I had used the wrong watch setting on my, on my watch to track the race. And so basically to, to make it easy to explain, I, I basically just started a run on my race or on my watch. And basically it was just tracking the miles as I went. Whereas what I should have done is I should have used the setting that allowed me to use uh, a pre a pre inputted route of the actual course. That way I would, I would know if I ever veered off course or anything because it's all done with, with GPS. So at mile four, I had to basically cancel out the, the current setting that it was on and then use the setting that allowed me to check the course route and then have all the notifications if I went off course. The reason I share this is because every time I would do a watch check to see where I was at, I would have to add four miles because that was when I shut it off, right? And so it was just, it seemed like for the those first few hours, like, oh gosh, man, it was just exhausting to have to like, look at my watch, see the mileage, see the time, but then have to add four miles because I had already ran that distance. And so that ended up being a massive pain in my ass for the remainder of the race. 
But then at mile five, a storm rolled in, which was really interesting because we started with clear blue skies. And the cool thing about this is that at mile five, that, that fog rolled in so quickly and we could see it. And, you know, we're at 72, 7,300 feet already. So we're, we're pretty high up there. And uh, you could see the fog roll in. You could, you could hear the thunder rolling. Then the lightning came. Then the rain came. And what's so beautiful about it is it, it almost felt like the spirits, the, the ancestors of the crow people, in the crazy mountains were in a way welcoming us to, uh, to the land. And, and that's, that's how I received that, that storm as a, as a welcoming, you know, if you, if you break down the, the language that the crow people use to call these mountains, the word itself is awaksawapia, awaksawapia. And, and if you break that into, into two parts, awaksa means, angry or ominous and wapia is the crow word for mountains putting that together it's 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 the the angry the ominous mountains and so i felt like i felt like the spirits were were welcoming us and letting us know that hey man we're here we we acknowledge you for being here as well but don't forget where you're at and don't forget to, to, to move lightly across this land because this is sacred ground and anything can happen from sunshine to lightning to hail to rain to just know that you're in for an adventure. And as that storm started to, to progress and get, and get a little bit more intense, I was welcoming to that idea as well. So after that, uh, that storm passed and we finally got out of it, um, I was feeling really good around mile 18, mile 19 came around and I met my crew about 45 minutes ahead of schedule, which was really nice. I got that Claritin and the, and the hydrocortisone cream for my bee stings. At this point, my ankles were already, you know, I could, they were already swollen. And so I kind of was my stride was affected a little bit by it, but it was still early on in the race where I was still feeling pretty good. But I knew that this was really going to be the only aid station where I could plan like a concrete arrival time because the the rest of the aids were just going to be based on how I was feeling in the moment. And I wouldn't see my crew again for the next 23 miles. And that would put me at around mile 43. And this is after two major mountain passes. And so it's like, well, I think I'm going to get here at six o'clock, but I'm not really sure. We're just going to have to stay in touch through the communication. And, and that's what we did. So I left mile 19 after getting aid from my crew, feeling really good. And now I've got to move to the next section of the race, which again is 23 miles and over two big mountain passes. And so I started my first real climb of the race up this narrow drainage through the trees. We had some nice weather through there as well. Um, it was about 80 degrees in total, so it wasn't really too bad. It had a nice pace going, nice hiking pace going. I'd say probably like 16 minute miles or so. And the thing about the crazy mountains that a lot of people may not realize is that it is really difficult to get a good steady running pace because there's just so many rocks. There's so much exposure. The terrain is very technical. So there would be sections where, you know, I would be able to run for maybe a couple minutes and then I would have to go back to hiking because you just have these big, 
boulders and these like dinner plate sized scree uh, rocks on the trail. And it's just very hard to run through that stuff. So it made it difficult, but uh, you know, we were pushing up there. I felt really good. My, my, my nutrition was on schedule every 30 to 45 minutes. I was popping a gel in this race. I was doing something a little bit differently in terms of my hydration. Typically I do five to seven ounces every 15 minutes, but because of the elevation, because of the altitude that I was at, typically the higher that you are, the quicker you dehydrate. So instead I was drinking to thirst instead of following that protocol that I just mentioned. So around mile 20, I would say 20, uh, 23 or so, I, I got uh, up and over my first major climb of the race, which was Campfire Pass at 9,078 feet, and then immediately descended down 2,700 feet. At about mile 26 uh, was our first big remote aid station called Cow Camp, which I really love because, you know, everybody's, everybody's dressed like a cow, you know, it's, it's super funny. They're all in like cow costumes and they packed in that entire aid station on horseback up eight miles through this drainage to, to be up there for us, which I thought was really cool. And so, um, after leaving cow camp at mile 26, my next big climb was just a couple miles later up to the highest point in the race, which was conical peak and Conical Pass. And this was at 10,000 feet of elevation where we were greeted by the spirits again in another massive storm. Actually, I would say more intense than the first one because not only do we have limited visibility of 10 to 15 yards because of the fog, we also have thunder and lightning and we also have hail that's just pelting your skin with these like marble-sized pieces of hail. It was really intense. I, I remember just like, my skin was just sore after the hail finally stopped because of just the the constant pelting from that. And there's nowhere to take cover because you're on this big exposed pass. And if you know anything about lightning and being in an exposed area at high elevation, you realize that at any moment, like you could easily become a conductor for a bolt of lightning. And so there's, there's a, there's a, like a visceralness that's, when you're in the middle of a storm and there's nowhere for you to go but through, it does one of two things to a person, I think. I think it, 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 either, it either scares you and causes you retreat, to retreat or it invigorates you and it pushes you to move forward. And because I felt the latter about it and I saw it as almost as a, as a reminder from the spirits as to where I'm at, and to walk with reverence and, and caution and, and, and acknowledgement that it really did motivate me and, and push me forward in a lot of ways. And so being in that storm was probably one of my favorite memories of all. And then tr- getting back down and descending down to the next aid station where my crew was at, at mile 43 was just really, really a core memory for me. All right. So Remember I told you too that I couldn't get to, uh, I couldn't let my crew know what I was going to be there. And so I'd have to just communicate with them. Well, I was kind of thinking 6 PM. I actually got there at like 6:30, So I was pretty much on schedule for where I wanted to be. The next section of the race was 27 miles. So basically I was turning around from where I just came from and I'm going to go back up and over conical peak back to cow camp and then head over to another big pass. But before I did that, you know, it was, 
I was able to pick up my first pacer. I picked up my friend Sam, who flew in from Missouri to, to pace me through this section, which was all through the night. So basically 7 a.m. until we got to the next aid station, which I'll get to in a second. Took our headlamps, we took a, a rain jacket just in case we got caught in some weather, and then we just got after it, man. So once we got back up and over Conical Peak, once we got past Cow Camp again, we had to immediately cross what's called Deep Creek, which is, I mean, literally what it, what it means is, is this massive, it's actually, in my opinion, a river that was up to our knees and then heading up to what's known as Sunlight Pass, another major climb in the race. And this is actually probably the most treacherous part of the course because, again, it's, it's at this point in the race, it's uh, 2 a.m., and you have to cross this really technical section where you're basically sliding down on your butt on this really sheer cliffside for about 10 to 15 yards. And to your right, uh, excuse me, to your left, is a 1,000-foot drop. And one wrong step on this really insecure footing and you're just going downhill and, and that's, and that's life. And so this was a really stressful part of the, of the race. And we just really had to take it slow. It wasn't too windy out there. There was a few people around, but we really just took our time, man. And, and while it was pretty hairy there for a second, we ended up getting through that and we just kept moving. So we reached that, uh, that next checkpoint with the crew at about 7.30 a.m. At this point in the race, um, I'm, I'm starting to get kind of fatigued. Blisters in both of my feet have set in. I have them in basically all of my toes. Um, I've got one on each one of my heels and then a, a little one in the pads of my feet, which are also super, super sore and tender. At this point in the race, it's mile 70. And I'm so happy to see my crew once I get there, you know, it was, uh, I, I got aid from my team and I was just feeling really good. You know, I was, I was feeling renewed. I got some food in me. I got, uh, some different clothes on and I picked up my, my other pacer, which is my brother, which I thought was really cool. At this point too, I was, I was actually feeling really excited about finishing the race. I thought I was in a really good position. Um, and, uh, I only had 30 miles to go. Shoot. I just did 70. So at the first light of day, I'm feeling really good. So we took off. And, uh, at the, at the, right as you leave that aid station, you're basically in this old farmer's field and you can still kind of see the aid station, but you're maybe a hundred yards or so away from your, from your crew. And I remember telling my daughter, I yelled at her th across this field. I said, Daisha, be ready to run, be ready to run because I'm going to pick her up at mile 93 and her and I are going to finish the race together. And so I, I felt really excited to be able to share that opportunity with her, to be able to run with her and to, to finish with her. And so she was also really excited about it. Unbeknownst to me, this was something that she had been talking about nonstop with the crew and just really, really looking forward to. So in a way, I was saying that for her to be ready, but I also was telling myself in order to, to be held more accountable to continuing to move forward despite how I felt. So as we kept going, I'll tell you, man, I was not expecting the <laughs> how steep that ascent was coming out of that next aid station. It rocked me. It absolutely rocked me. I went from running a couple miles on flat land to just going straight up a mountain with no trail, nothing at all. And holy cow, man, it, it freaking cooked me because there was not a lot of coverage. You know, we were pretty much exposed for those next 
you know, 20 miles or so. And, and it just made it really difficult. Now we talked about cutoffs, right? Towards the end of the race, you, you start to have cutoffs to make sure that people who aren't meeting that, that cutoff are weaned off of the course to keep it safe for everybody and, and even for themselves. The next aid station, I believe, was called Forest Lake, all right? And this was at mile 80, 83, I believe, 83. And we had to get there at 10.15, all right? That was the cutoff. 10.15 is the cutoff. Well, we were getting close, man. I'm not going to lie. We were getting really close to that time. And as it started to get closer and closer, we realized that we're not going to be able to hike anymore if we're going to make it to Forest Lake on time. Luckily, we got out of the mountain. We got onto the gravel road. And at, I think it was maybe like 10.03 or 10.04, we realized that we have just a little more than a mile to go to get to the aid station. So once we hit that gravel road, I mean, it was it was balls to the wall. Mile, whew, now that I think about it, it wasn't mile 83, it was mile 77. We had to get to the aid station as fast as freaking possible if we were going to make that cutoff. So my brother and I, hustled our ass, man, nonstop on that gravel road. Neither one of us stopped running. And here's the crazy part. I'm pushing as, as hard as I think that I, I can possibly go at that moment to get there. As we start to crest over this hill, I can see the aid station in the distance. I can see somebody there that's like in the distance, but is like yelling at me to hurry up and come on. So I speed up. I keep going as fast as I can. I'm getting closer. I can see the aid station. I can hear people cheering. He comes, he actually runs towards me as I'm running to him, basically grabs my shirt and he's running alongside me and telling me that I need to go even faster. So I start speeding up. And as we round another corner to the aid station, we get into the aid station right at 1015 not a second to spare. The moment that I cross into the aid station, they pull me directly back out of the aid station and then I have to just wait there for a moment. Because the rule is, you have to be out of the aid station by the cutoff or you get pulled from the race. So again, the second that I, I crossed the line into the aid, I was pushed directly right back out. It was insane. I couldn't believe we made it. Not a minute to spare, not a second to spare, but we were there at 10.15, right on the frickin' dot. It was incredible. And my brother and I, we, we look back on this now and we laugh because mile 77 was the most important, at, up until that point in the race, the most important mile of, of all of the miles so far because had we been a few seconds later, we wouldn't have, we would have been pulled from the race. So mile 77 was very important to me, man. And, and also at that time, the hardest part of the race too, just because, man, it was just so freaking hot and there was just no, no tree coverage at all. And we were just really hustling to get there. So my brother and I continue on for another, oh man, probably 15 miles. And that was just really taxing on the body because at this point in the race, you know, I've been up for 30 hours. And anytime you get to that like 30 hour mark of a race, this is the point where your body really starts to, to do two things. Number one, it, it really starts to slow down and just become fatigued and tired. And the tiredness sets in. This is the point where, you know, you, you've, been, you've been exerting yourself for so long that it just wants to go to sleep. And I started to feel that, you know, right about mile, I'd say 70, 
79.80 right in there. I was like, okay, I, I really just need to go to sleep for a little bit. I was kind of like falling asleep on my feet. But the other thing that happens at this point is the negative thoughts start to creep in. The doubt, the fears, the, the all of that. And you really have to be strong enough to silence those voices when they when they arise. And I think that that's one of the re- reasons I love ultra running so much is because there's so many parallels that are the same in running as they are in life. Because think about this for a second. When, when you're irritated, when you've had a long day, when things haven't been going your way, little things that wouldn't necessarily bother you in any other environment tend to be the things that you focus on the most and the things that you get upset about the quickest, right? But it's in those moments where I'm reminded that I have an opportunity here and I have the choice to either let my negative obtrusive thoughts take over and steer the ship or if I can just know that, hey, this is the time in my, in, in my life or in my race when this stuff starts to happen, that I can then do something different about it and realize that this is to be expected and when it happens, I just deal with it accordingly in a way that supports the task at hand, that keeps me moving forward and keeps me in a, in a positive mindset. And so, again, I think that the, the, the big takeaway here that I'm trying to get across is that when you expect things to go wrong, when you expect there to be some point in your day or in your life or in your race, when you just know something isn't going to go your way, well, at least you're prepared for it. So that when it hits, it doesn't catch you off guard. It doesn't catch you by surprise and it doesn't allow that surprise to spiral out of control. And it actually gives you power to remind yourself that, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. And because of that, I can use logic to then override the negative or critical thoughts that I'm currently having and put them in a positive place that keeps me moving forward. So... After that next part of the race, we finally snake into the last part, which is the last aid station of the race, which is at mile 93. This is the place where I'm supposed to meet my daughter. This is the place where I now have roughly an hour and 15 minutes or so to finish the race and to qualify and and to to be able to to say I finished and, and get a buckle in and go home. I made it to that aid station at mile 93 with seven minutes to spare. Seven minutes before the cutoff at that aid station would have pulled me from the race. My crew patched me up. At this point, I'm just feeling like shit overall. I'm tired. I've I've been on empty for the last six miles. But the thing that really was helpful for me in that moment was I got to run with my daughter. And I'd been thinking about that for miles and miles. In fact, that was probably the the biggest thing that was driving me those last six miles or so down to, to this aid station where I have to be there on time. I have to make this cutoff. I told my daughter I was going to be there. I told my daughter that I was going to run with her. And I'm not somebody who breaks my promises. And so that was a lot of the jet fuel in my legs that was keeping me moving and being on time. You know, if you think about this for a second, when we say things to our kids, when we make promises, when we commit to something, they remember and they, they fixate on it and they think about it 
and they start to fantasize like what that commitment or that promise is going to be like, how much fun they're going to have, what it's going to be like to spend time with their dad or their mom. It goes a lot deeper than just the words that we use, but, but the level of, the level of trust that it builds with our children. And, you know, I grew up in a, in a family where I had a dad who didn't always keep his word with us. You know, there'd be a lot of times where he would, he would say he was going to be there. He promised he was going to be there. And then he just wouldn't show for one reason or another. And I remember at that time being a young kid, how that made me feel. And as I got older and I, and I, and I started raising Daisha, I realized, you know what? I don't ever want Daisha to feel the way that I did when I was a kid. And that happened. And so early on, uh, as I was raising Daisha, I made a commitment to myself that if I say I'm going to do something with her, I'm going to do it. And I've, I've held to that commitment my entire time that, that I've been in her life, which has now been 14 years. And so again, it's, it's that, that idea of keeping your word with your kids that's just so important that was fueling me to get there with her. And when it finally came time for us to run those last seven miles together and being on empty and already running 93 and having just a short amount of time to finish, as much as it hurt to be running at that point in the race, it felt so good to be there with my daughter. This was the hardest part of the race for me and and probably the most challenging piece for me to get over. At about mile 98, I had just a handful of minutes before the race officially closed at the 36-hour mark, and I would no longer be considered a, a qualified finisher of the race. And so at this point, I was probably doing an 11 or 12-minute mile because that's all that I had in me. I was going as fast as I possibly could. The blisters on my feet were popping. My legs were dead. My, my breath and my heart rate were elevated. I was giving it everything that I had. And then I heard that I had about two miles left and I knew that I had about 13 or 14 minutes to, to, to do that in. And I knew the math in my head is very simple. If I have two miles and 13 minutes, I have to do roughly a six to seven minute mile to be there on time. And so I don't really know what it was that, that came over me outside of my crew yelling at me and running alongside me and, and pushing me, but I hit another gear. I found that other gear. And whether that was all of the speed work that I did in that second block of training that allowed me to find that gear whether that was just that, that, that dog inside of me that was always wanting more, whether that was my deep, dark insecurities that I have around myself, whether that was just the, the, the human spirit inside of me. I don't really know what it was, but whatever it was, it allowed me to tap into something greater. And for those last two miles, I was told that I ran between a six and seven minute pace faster than anything that I had done at any part of the race prior to that. Even when I'm feeling fresh, I never see the six minutes, <laughs> maybe a seven thirty, seven forty-five minute mile, but never do I see the sixes. 
and it was a, a really powerful reminder for me to know that, you know, we have more to give despite how far we've come, despite how tired we may be, despite what we've been through, we still have more to give. We just have to be willing to be open to that idea that there is more to give, that there is another gear that we can, that we can shift into, that we aren't just in a fixed position, but in fact, we're in a position where we can, we can almost do anything that we want. The struggle that I have with this entire thing is that there's a 36 hour cutoff. And then at that point, you're basically considered uh, a non-finisher. I crossed the finish line in 36 hours and 20 seconds. Just 20 seconds past the cutoff. Officially, a DNF did not finish. Did I run 100 miles? Yes. Did I, did I run 100 miles in the allotted time they gave us? No. And so these are kind of the, the, the takeaways that I have from the race after working through the initial disappointment and frustrations and anger that I had with, with coming up just 20 seconds short of actually finishing, being a qualified finisher of this race. Number one, um, first and foremost, although I crossed the finish line, I don't feel like I finished the race. Because if I would have finished the race, I would have done it within the amount of time that I was given. But because I was late by 20 seconds, uh, I did not finish the actual race. But I did cross the finish line. I did run every single step of that race that I was tasked with, and I got it done just like every other finisher did. I didn't run less. I didn't run more. I ran exactly what I was told to run. I just didn't do it in the time that they told me to run it in. And therefore, there's a bit of an open loop there for me. Number two, there's a big difference between loss and total loss. And here's what I mean. When you have a loss, or at least in my situation, the, the loss for me was that I didn't finish on time, that I didn't get that beautiful belt buckle that they were giving out to people who finished within 36 hours. That's a loss to me. But I see total loss as there being no other metric of appreciation or acknowledgement or win outside of that. So like, I didn't just run this race for the buckle. There was a lot of things that I took away from this race that were actually very meaningful to me. Things like, you know, the, the appreciation that I have for my body, for what I put it through. And for it to come out the other side of it, uninjured. I had no hip pains. I had no knee issues. I had no mechanical structural issues. I had blisters on my feet, but like that's, that just comes with the territory. But structurally, my body withstood the, the, the relentlessness that I put it through in those mountains. And so I think there's a, a big difference between loss and total loss. The race to me was not a total loss because there were so many good things that came from it. But the race to me was a loss. I lost that race because I didn't complete it within the time that I was given. And so I think that how that can apply to life is that when, when you come up short, 
when you don't find ways to, to, to find the good that came from the experience, you will view it as a total loss. And the more total losses that you accumulate through life, the more difficult, the more unfulfilling, the more challenging life becomes. It's okay to have losses. It's okay to acknowledge those losses. And it's okay to continue to rack up those losses. But I don't think that it's okay to have a life full of total losses or to see your life as a total loss. Does that make sense? There's always something that can be taken from the experience. You just have to spend time and and be willing to go in there and, and seek out what those things are. That's why me recording this podcast has taken almost two weeks because I wanted to sit with it and really just think it through in total. The third takeaway here is, this is something I'm still learning myself, is to allow yourself to feel everything from that, that, that shortcoming and then discard what isn't serving you. Allow yourself to feel everything. And when I was sitting in that chair at the finish line and realizing that I didn't complete the race like I was supposed to, I thought of everything and I was mad about everything. Had I not stopped to pee just one time at the finish of the race there, I would have, I would have qualified. But at mile 90, I think 96, I told Daisha for a second, I'm like, Hey, hold on. I got to stop to pee. Did I superly really have to pee? No, I just kind of had to pee, but I was just so tired. I just needed a break. But had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have stopped to pee. And that would have been the difference for me. And so Allow yourself to feel everything from the, the simple, silly little things like what I just mentioned to the, the other end of the spectrum to where it's like, I spent an entire year preparing for this. I've invested thousands of dollars into this, hours and hours and countless days of time and preparation and training and so much was sacrificed. Allow yourself to feel everything from that shortcoming but then you have to have the awareness to discard what isn't serving you. In my situation, what's not serving me is pining over that time that I stopped to pee at mile 96. Being upset with myself for stopping to pee isn't serving me. And, it, and it's, it's actually making this more of a total loss than just a loss. And so because I know that, I have to discard it. It's not helping me at all, so it's got to go. And I think that anytime that you come across a setback in your own life, that's something that I would encourage you to do as well. Just to allow yourself to feel it all, man. Take a, take a minute, take an hour, take a couple days, whatever it takes, man. But you've got to continue to, to allow yourself to feel it all and then discard what isn't serving you. The fourth takeaway is that the highest form of our self that we should aim to be is unstoppable. Unstoppable. And this is a word that's, that's been trending on the internet and with coaches and gurus and whatever. But before this was a trendy word, this was something that I was always trying to embody. The highest form of self that we should aim to be is unfucking stoppable It doesn't matter how many setbacks we experience through life. 
It's how we deal with those setbacks that make us unstoppable. No matter how many times that we get knocked down, do you want to be the type of person that just stays down and sees it as a total loss and continues to just live a mediocre, average life? Or do you want to get knocked down and then get right back up and continue fighting? Get knocked down and then get right back up and continue moving forward. Who do you want to be in that situation? And more so, if you have kids, what do you want your kids to see you doing? That's the thing that is so important to me, is when I'm unstoppable and I practice that in my life, my daughter sees that. My, my, my spouse, Gabriella, soon to be wife, she sees it. My family sees it. My friends see it. My audience, my people on social media with me see it. And it filters out and trickles into them. It's so important that through life that we find ways to become unstoppable. And I think that if you can do that, you're going to live an above average life. You're going to have a life full of fulfillment and joy and real happiness. Because on the other side of suffering and struggle and setback is happiness and fulfillment. That's where it's at. So those are, those are my big four takeaways from the race. Um, I guess final thoughts, and this, this, this is just off the top of my head, but because I was 20 seconds late and I didn't officially complete the race, I'm sure you're probably thinking, well, are you going to go back? Are you going to, are you going to go back and, and, and do it within 36 hours? And the answer is, yeah, I am. I've already started preparing for it. I've already started training for it. Come July 2024, I'll be right back out in the mountains. And I'm going to do it right this time. And I'm going to get it done within that 36-hour time limit. And I'm going to do another one of these podcasts. And I'm going to reflect back on everything that I talked about on this show now. And then I'm going to compare it to how it went then. And I think it's going to be a completely different outcome. Because I now have a year more of experience of training, of effort and sacrifice and understanding of myself. And that's going to make me better and it's going to make me even more unstoppable. And so final thought here, I guess, is my, my biggest encouragement to you. If you've made it this far in, in, in the podcast, number one, I just want you to know that I appreciate you for being here with me and, and for hearing my random uh, rants that I've been going on and how I'm like trying to still piece this together somewhat. I hope that what I said was succinct and clear enough for you to be able to take something from it. But, but my biggest encouragement here is to find ways to be unstoppable in your own life. Put yourself in positions where you have no choice but to continue moving forward, whether that be physically or mentally. Maybe that's emotionally or you're stretching yourself spiritually the highest form of self that we should attain to be is unstoppable. Because like I said, on the other side of the struggle that we go through in order to be that, we're going to find real, true, lasting joy and happiness. And ultimately, when we're unstoppable, the people that we love and care about most also receive some of that from us as well. 
and it's a gift that we'll continue to give over the course of our life, once, even once we're gone. Find ways to be unstoppable in your own life. Get back up from setback. And remember that loss and total loss are completely different things. And I just hope that I just hope that uh, that you know that I appreciate you for being here with me. This random guy on the internet who just a handful of years ago was a nobody that nobody even really knew, but then at one point decided to take control of his life, put himself in difficult situations to learn and to grow from, and then social media just happened to be there too, and he started posting about it, not for the likes or the recognition or the attaboys, but to just show others what might be possible for themselves as well. Um, love you so much. Thanks for listening. Whew.